Amen. How are we this morning? Man, I'm glad to be back with you guys. I listened to Dr. Purser's sermon from last week, and that thing was absolutely smoking. I think that somebody had to call the fire department. Um, If you missed, if you were not here last week like I was not, I would encourage you to check out the church podcast, church website. It's an incredible, incredible message on the question, can we actually trust the New Testament? Can we actually trust it? The week before, we looked at the Old Testament, and today, we're going to look at the last subject we're going to address in our three-week series, The Battle for the Bible. Can you actually trust the Scripture, right? This is a question, because Christianity is not a faith that came about as a result of mysticism, but Christianity is a faith that has come from the book that is recorded, right, the words of God through his, through his prophets, And um, before we do that, I just want to give, so let's give some praise to Jesus here. Uh, This is a couple of weeks ago. I think it's our third inmate meal. Uh, These are the trustees of the Franklin County Jail that were here in y'all's fellowship hall. Yeah. It, It was an awesome, awesome time. We had a testimony that was shared that was absolutely incredible. And these men were able to eat Good, I mean, amazing, amazing food cooked by uh, many of you. And there were, as every Rocky Mount Baptist Church event, there were copious amounts of dessert. I think that we've got a ratio thing, like we bring, you know, like 50% food. If that's enough to feed everybody plus 50%, then we just double that. And if we're going to you know, have 200 people, we bring enough dessert for, for 400. But these guys were able to hear the gospel. They were able to experience love from people who had been loved by God and all of them know when they left here and went back to finish out their time that when they finish out their time they have a faith family here in the county right down the road who will love them and accept them and their families and I'm so so excited to be able to partner with you guys in ministry and for those of y'all got the email and those of you who are able to be here this past Wednesday night and our is a first Time in a Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, I believe, and in the history of our jail ministry, we were able to baptize one of the men uh, from the jail ministry. And it was, a, it was a moving time, and we went through a period of where we talked about what is the gospel, what is baptism. We learned that baptism doesn't save us, but baptism by immersion pictures the gospel That's something that sprinkling does not. It pictures the gospel, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And he was able to to walk through that with our jail ministry guys. And we counseled with them and said, you know what? I want to follow Christ and represent him even though I'm still incarcerated. And I just want to give a shout out to our police department. What police department is going to be able to allow, notice, churches to receive inmates with open arms? I know we're entering into an election year. We've got conservative and liberal, libertarian, progressive, all of that thrown together. Everybody has the question, how do you improve society? Let me just put a rock in the shoe of wherever you stand along that spectrum. Maybe we would see a a smaller recidivism rate. That's these guys going in, getting out, doing something, going back in, getting out, doing something, going back in. Maybe there would be a smaller recidivism rate of the men who return to prison if there's actually a place that they know they can, they can have friends who are not living on the wrong side of the law. Just a thought. And not only that, but friends who are able to express the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because laws don't change people. Law, people are changed by the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. This was made possible by what Jesus has done in our lives and by your response and your obedience. Because let me just be very honest. There's a lot of churches that would not put up with any of it. Because Sunday morning is a Christian prom. It's where people come who dress nice, smell nice, and act nice when they're here. But their desire is not to reach their community. You see, Rocky Mount Baptist Church is not ours. It's Jesus's, right? And it comes from the scripture, Matthew 28. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave a charge to his disciples. And he said, I want you to go into the county seat towns and I want you to get as many of the big givers as you can and build the nicest, I mean, the nicest building you can and build a pipe organ that you could otherwise feed people in a third world country for probably about a year and buy the pipe organ and spend inordinate amounts of money on yourselves and have a great club and that's my plan. I love it when it gets quiet. Jesus' words were going to all the world Make disciples. Doesn't mean just people who say one thing and do another, but people who are willing to follow Jesus make disciples of all nations. All of the, in the Greek, all the, all the ethnicities. And that is Jesus' plan. So praise God for your willingness to be the church. I love you guys. Let's dig into the word. All right. Um, the Bible in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, this will pick up and start our discussion this morning on prophecy. This is what the Bible says about its own prophecies. Note, 1 Peter 1, 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So right here, the scripture's saying that the prophetic writings in the Old Testament, the things that talk about what's gonna happen in the future and the things that talk about what to do today, those did not come as a result of human creativity, but rather, notice the text, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It means that what we find in the Bible is not just a collection of people putting their own thoughts into the text. But what we find in the prophecies of the Bible is what God used people to write. God spoke through. He moved the prophets to write what they wrote. So here's a, here's a question. If prophecy actually does come from God, have you ever thought about this? If the prophecies in Scripture actually don't have a human origin, then we should really expect a completely different outcome, right? Completely different prophecies on what people would actually create. Now, here's something interesting to note, especially for our Bible teachers here at Rocky Mount Baptist. Over 80% of the prophetic writings in the Old Testament do not have to do with the future. A lot of times when we say the word prophecy, what we think of is people on late night Christian television, Right? I mean, they've got all these charts with these weird animals, which we're going to look at some weird stuff here in just a few minutes, and hopefully it freaks some of you out. We enjoy doing that here. But, I mean, you've you, you got the late-night Christian programming. You've got all these strange animals, and they're talking about the end of the world. And, you know, back in the 80s and, like, 70s, it was the UPC code, right? Like, that, that was the mark of the beast. And then people look at Gorbachev and say his birthmark, and just all this weird, weird, crazy stuff. But it's interesting to know that the prophetic writings in the Bible, mo most all of which talk about how we should turn to God now as opposed to what's going to happen in the future. So here's the main idea. Here's the big thought for today is that prophecy, 
stands as a monument to God's supremacy over human history. It means when we kind of back up and kind of deer hunters loosen out the scope to three powers instead of nine, when we get the wide angle view of what God's doing in the world, we see, say, man, how would these guys have ever known to prophesy that? And it come to fulfillment hundreds of years later. And also, I mean, honestly, prophecy, it's, it, it's just a, an evidence of God's mercy giving an unbelieving world another chance to repent. It's God saying, you know what? You guys want proof? I'll give you proof. We walked through, what was it, seven weeks? That was such a fun series, at least for me, the existence of God. What does science say? Does that point to an intelligent designer? You know, what does logic say? And we looked at all of those arguments, but it's almost like God says, you know what? I'll give you, I'll give you a Chick-fil-A milkshake. Come on. And here's the cherry on top, which is prophecy. Like if you really, really want evidence, look at what the Old Testament prophesied by people who would not have had any type of that information. So who were the prophets? Who were these people? There's an Old Testament scholar named Abraham Heschel, and here's what he says about the Old Testament prophets. He says, to be a prophet is both a distinction and an affliction. Now imagine this. You're in the Old Testament. Out of all of the things that you would imagine doing and wanting to do with your life, it probably would not be a prophet. I mean, these dudes were hounded. They were, they, they were hated by people. Imagine, imagine this, and it's up here on the screen. Imagine if you were there and God showed up and he leads you to communicate a message. His spirit, the Holy Spirit, moves you to communicate a message that people will absolutely hate. And not only that, they're going to hate you as a result of it. I mean, imagine. Imagine what that would be like. You're, you're talking. Say, what do you want to do? What do you want to do, Benjamin? Well, I want to grow up and I want to be a craftsman. I want to be able to do repairs at the temple. Well, what about you? I want to grow up to be a military leader like King David and take names and kick things. I mean, I, what do you want to do? Well, I want to be a large rancher. I want to be a sheep person. I want to raise sheep. What do you want to do? I enjoy pain misery and no friends sign me up for prophet school like that's what it would be like like if you're in that time they say what do you want to do like nobody would say prophet i mean it was a crazy crazy occupation but here's the question what if god shows up today and tells you to say some things to people in your life that are truth it's not judgmental it's not arrogant but you know they're going to hate it and they're probably going to hate you as a result the feelings that you and I, that I, we experience when we think about stuff like that, that's a small kernel in what the prophets experienced. When we look at the prophets in the Old Testament, prophecy almost always just empties the vessel. Like they're the vessel that God chose to use to bring that message. It almost always leaves them broken. Which kind of raises a question. This may give some some whiplash. But what's a hero? Ever thought about that? What's a hero? What is heroic? And I know we're in the middle of football season. If we can take a deviation. How many of you remember the Bulls in the 1990s? I should probably ask how many of you were alive in the 1990s. Because if you were alive in the 1990s and you did not literally, literally live under a boulder, like not a rock, you would know about the Chicago Bulls. And this is a little screenshot here from June 11, 1997, in game five to where the Chicago Bulls 
defeat the Utah Jazz. And I remember watching this as a teenager. I know students, your pastor's so old, like it's not a teenager in 97, watch out. And I was watching Michael Jordan, and he actually had the flu. And I remember seeing him run up and down the court, and his wrists were just flopping. And when they would be shooting free throws, you see on the screen, he would just be bent over, could barely stand. But somehow, MJ, the greatest basketball player to ever live, I mean, you can go to LeBron or Kobe, but you can be dead wrong and dumb at the same time. It's a free country. But the greatest basketball player, come on, who's ever lived, ever, I mean, he was able to pull out 38 points in a win. And I mean, I wanted to play basketball. You know, I would lower the goal down to seven and a half feet so I could dunk. You know, I, I was the man in my own world. You watch Mighty Ducks, you're Wayne Gretzky, right? That's the way it works when you're in high school. And then I was watching that, and the, the announcers were just going crazy. This is one of the greatest performances of all time in the history of the NBA. It could even be labeled on the level of, and they use the word, heroic. Man, that stuck with me. Heroic. You know, as I was thinking about this message, it's like the Lord led me to to Hebrews 11 that kind of gives a true snapshot, but it gives both angles on what actually a hero is according to biblical standards. It's on the screen, and you can go there in your Bibles, but Hebrews eleven thirty two through 38. Notice how the Bible explains the life of a prophet, a prophet in relation to heroes. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and by the way, these are all awesome, awesome characters in the Old Testament, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Pretty cool thing to have on your resume. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. What an, I mean, imagine going out like that. I mean, seriously, you're staying strong for the Lord and they persecute you to the point of death and then you're with Jesus. And then the other side of the coin, next verse. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You know, in our culture, we have a model of heroes that often revolves around sports. But when you're a prophet and you catch this side of the coin that God ordains for your life, it says, you will glorify me through your suffering. There's no timeouts. There's nobody to come when you twist your ankle, when you're down, who'll be able to give you proper medical care. There's no water boy or water girl to hand you Gatorade or H2O. There's no timeouts. And the only one that you're living for is God. And the only one who really cares about you probably is God. You see, that's a hero. But before we stop short, 
what we want to get across in the, in the understanding of what prophets are. They are absolute heroes of the Old Testament. They are heroes of the Bible. But if we simply focus on the heroism of these prophets, we have missed the whole point. These prophets and what they did and what they preached, they are but a faint shadow of the ultimate one who is Jesus. Amen? Like David defeated Goliath, but what it means is, hey, you know what? Jesus is a greater conqueror than David. Moses, as we studied this morning, Josh did a great job in Sunday school this morning talking about Moses. Moses led those people out. He was an incredible leader, but Jesus is the greater leader. You see, when we say, wow, MJ in that performance, that was incredible. And I'll just say that was heroic. We say that's not anything in comparison to the prophets, but all of the prophets one day will bow their knees and cast all their crowns before the feet of Jesus. So the prophets point to Christ. So what should fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament, in the Bible, actually calls us to do. Number one, when we look at prophecy and we see evidence of it actually fulfilled, it should cause us to actually believe the Bible's claims about what happened in the past. That the Bible is not a collection of stories for children. And if you have your Bibles there in Daniel chapter 7, this is honestly one of the strangest passages in all of the Old Testament. And it begins with, in verse 1 in Daniel 7, here's the background. He's there in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon. Uh, This would be a descendant of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the greatest king in the history of Babylon. And here's what he sees. Notice it says, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declares, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. This is already an interesting vision dream. And four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another. The first one was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. Anybody confused already? Like this is interesting stuff. Now notice the picture here. You guys like that? Like honestly, if you were having a dream and a vision and you saw something like this, it may cause you to think what is going on. But Daniel knew God to the point that he said this is a vision from God and the vision had to do with Nebuchadnezzar. The vision had to do with the Babylonian Empire. Now notice it continues there in the next verse. In verse five, and behold another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told arise devour much flesh. History tells us that the Babylonians fell to a combined force of the Medes and the Persians. Persia, it would be modern-day Iran. And what's interesting that history also tells us that had not happened at the time of Daniel was that the Medes and the Persians would also conquer three nations, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, very interesting. And in chapter 8, if you want to do some more study, it actually details and calls out these specific nations. Not only that, but in verse number 6, after this I looked, and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. We're going from strange to stranger. 
But what history tells us is that Alexander the Great, and, Ale- and the, this is, is named in the next chapter, actually they were the ones who defeated the Persians. History tells us that the Greeks, Alexander took, check this out, military history buffs, 30,000 Macedonians and defeated the entire Persian Empire. If you've seen the movie 300, I mean, it was like that, but it was like ancient blitzkrieg like the Germans did in World War II. It was almost like, historians said, it was almost like Alexander never even touched the ground. And Alexander drank himself to death around the age of 32 and 33. And historians have said Alexander was a man who was able to conquer the whole known world, but was not able to conquer himself. Man, that's a word. And then his kingdom was divided by his four generals. Daniel chapter 8 gives more of an outline saying this is what actually happened. And then on top of that, you see um, a fourth beast there in verse number 7 that is terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Here's what's going on. The ones who followed the Greeks were the Romans and the Roman Empire. I mean, we still make movies about it. There's still shows like how massive the Roman Empire actually was, and they destroyed everything in their path. Daniel is giving, notice, he's not giving specific prophecies that happen here or there. He's talking about a succession of empires that no one would have been able to think about in that time before it even happened. So when we look at the Old Testament, we see that there are all of these examples of prophecies that actually happen in real history. But not only that, it gets very specific when we see what the Old Testament has to say about Jesus. You see, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the Bible says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephaphra, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come Forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. That is a prophetic utterance about where Jesus would be born. Have you ever thought about this? When Jesus was born, remember what his name, what he was known as? Jesus of Nazareth. He was not known as Jesus of Bethlehem. But you remember Mary and Joseph, they had to go to Bethlehem to register for taxes. You see, nothing is new. No, no, nothing is new. They had to go there for tax purposes, but this is interesting. It was just in time for Jesus to be born there, for Mary to recover, and then they made the trip back to Nazareth where they were actually raising baby Jesus. I mean, isn't that crazy? So Jesus' birthplace was actually foretold. Not only that, but Jesus' betrayal by a close friend, Judas, was also foretold. Psalm 41.9, the Bible says, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus says in John 13, 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Not only that, but Jesus' silent suffering. Like how would the Messiah actually suffer In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And all of the gospel accounts talk about how Jesus suffered all of it 
silently. I don't know about you, but when somebody begins to lie about you, it's pretty easy to talk back, right? I mean, that's natural, but Jesus took all of this, and yet he never uttered a word in defense. And this is even more intriguing, that Jesus' hands and feet being pierced. This is from Psalm 22, which was written around 1,000 years before Jesus came. And here's what the text says. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is before the Persians had ever thought to invent crucifixion. By the way, they were the ones that the Romans stole it from and perfected it. But yet it talks about in thousand years before Jesus ever came that his hands and his feet would be pierced. And not only that, you've got casino happening at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Like they actually were gambling. They were, they were casting lots for just his garment, his clothing. But yet the Bible calls the shots a thousand years before the fact. I don't know about you guys, but that means when I have sometimes say I doubt in certain times, and I say, Lord, I just don't, you know, help me with my unbelief. It's like he brings me back to texts like this. It says, you know what? It doesn't matter what you feel like on a Monday morning. What matters is that I love you enough to not only give you love in the deepest recesses of your heart, but I give you rock solid titanium truth for your mind. So what does this lead us to do? Man, I don't know about you guys, but when I look at evidence like Daniel calling these empires, I mean, massive empires that would take over one and another one would come and another one would come, and then the prophecies about Jesus, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but it causes me to believe in what the Bible says history is actually all about. That God actually created man and woman in a perfect place and then sin entered into the world. And then you have this fracturing in the world, in relationships, and in nature. But then God sent his son Jesus to redeem the world, and now we're between the cross and the crown. And one day he's coming back to redeem the world. It causes me, to, I mean, to be able to have questions, answers to questions, like what does it mean to be human? What is life about? To be human means to be created in the image of God, meaning that God has created us with the capacity to know him. I mean, we watched Elf last night. It was a very intellectual night. And he's saying, I know him, I know him. Like Santa, right? It, the Bible tells us that we've been created in the image of God. We have a capacity to not only realize that God is there, but this is so cool, y'all, that to realize and understand not only that God is there, but that I can have a personal relationship with God. And that everything working as it should comes out as spokes from that hub. And then you get into existential issues such as how should I deal with guilt and bitterness and forgiveness? You know the gospel of Jesus Christ, the old time gospel. I mean, going old school before old school was new school. Like 2,000 years ago, old school, you see that is the, the kernel, the seed, the engine of how we can be free from guilt and forgiveness. And it goes like this. You know, many people struggle, and I've had conversations. People say, now, Jeff, I'm really struggling with how to forgive myself. I don't know if I can. 
When you understand the gospel and you receive the gospel, you understand that you forgiving yourself is not the issue on the table. The issue on the table is, have I been forgiven by the one who takes everything into account? Do I have a right relationship with the judge who can also be my father? And if Jesus has forgiven me, if he's washed me clean, if he's made me brand new, then it means no matter what I feel, no matter what somebody may say, I am actually in the real world, in reality, forgiven. Like in reality, things that I've done that nobody else knows about, if God has forgiven me, if I've been saved and born again and cleansed, it means that I'm actually forgiven. So then the question becomes not, can I forgive myself, but who am I to hold myself to a higher standard than God? And if he has forgiven me, how can I not forgive myself? And not only that, but what is the point of life? The point of life is to know God. And freedom comes not by doing, quote, unquote, fun things. Freedom comes as a result of God changing our heart and doing the fun things in such a way that it brings glory to Jesus Christ. And then questions such as, what will the future be like? Do you guys obviously know what happened in California uh, this week? And it happens more and more all the time. To where more and more people are saying, you know what, the right thing for my family. And this would be crazy. We've talked about this many times. 40 years ago, it would be crazy. What are you going to do on a Saturday? I'm going to be trained to carry a deadly weapon concealed. Because when I take my family to the snow cone factory, there may be somebody coming in and shooting. People have been like, what are you smoking? And that's craziness. But today it's completely rational. We've got a world in which... The Middle East is a tinderbox. It's this big collection of dynamite and C4 and gasoline and diesel and gunpowder. And there are matches all over the place. And a lot of people today are scared. What's going to happen to my family? I've had conversations with people saying, you know, Jeff, we're married. We're not even sure if it's the right thing to bring a child into this kind of a world. I had a conversation with my mom about that a while ago. And she said when she was a little girl back in the 50s, they would do the drills to where they would have them hide under their desk in case the Russians started launching the big ones. Students, that's nuclear war. I mean, imagine that. Like second grade. All right, let's put our sentences together. Everybody, nuclear war. I mean, imagine the fear. You see, there's never been a time, there's never been a time to where there's not been something to be afraid of. I mean, unless you're on the episode of Barney or something like that. But like in the real world, like actual reality, there's never been a time in history to where there's not been something that you and I can't rationally sit there at night and be shaking, can't go to sleep. It's always been a scary world ever since sin has come in. But what Old Testament prophecy, what New Testament fulfillment leads us to understand is that, you know what? I know that God will bring everything to justice. I know that God has the whole world in his hands. I know that I can bring a child into this world and I can raise that child for the glory of God. I can make a difference because God's still in control. And guess what? When things look crazy and everybody starts to you know, go nuts and you watch the analyst and they're talking about the stock market, is it gonna tank? Yes. Got quiet again. Like eventually everything does. There are the ups and the downs, but if you know the Lord, you don't have to be dependent upon those things for your peace. 
Great Depression, crash of 2008, it showed that many people in our nation worship the God of money. Because when everything went kaput, there were people who lost hope and many took their own lives. I want to encourage you guys today as my faith family, do not fear. We take steps, we think well, we prepare, but there's time and time again the word of God says do not fear. So what does all of this cause us to do? We talked about this, to trust in God when we're fearful. When your kid's afraid, there at night, and we spent some time with family this past week, and there was a time where Michael was told to go to bed, and he started crying. I said, what's the matter, bubs? And he said, I want my white. I want my white. You're like, you're white. Oh, you're light. You're light. Okay, the surfboard one. And so I went over and flipped on his light, and he was good. The kid went to sleep. Like, you look at a little child like that and how they can be afraid of things so easily. But then I think sometimes we say, well, I'm an adult. I have rational fears. I have rational fears. The scripture says that God is our father. Instead of stressing over things time and time again, things that we cannot ever control, we say, Lord, you are sovereign I will live as best I can. I will serve. I will work. But at the end of the day, if you even choose me to be a vessel of suffering, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Prophecy should cause us to be a modern-day prophet, not getting on TV and saying all this bizarre stuff, but speaking the word of God. You know, students, one of the most radical things you can do, students and young adults especially, is actually communicate the gospel to people. And then finally, if this is true, if this actually is true, I mean, if there were people that had no access to a time machine, I mean, people who could have never known the succession of empires and where this little baby Jesus would be born and that his feet would be pierced and his hands pierced and all of these things, if they could have never known that and being thinking people, that leads us to believe that it had to come from somewhere other than individual or collective human creativity, if I had to come from God, then the question becomes, do I consult God in the decisions in my life? That's a huge topic, right? You ever know how it makes you feel when somebody comes to you and they're like, hey, what do you think? It shows value. When somebody says, hey, I've got this big decision. It's with work. It's with a relationship. You know, I've got a crazy girlfriend, crazy boyfriend. Like, help me work this out. I've got this this stress thing. I've got business people. Like, I don't know whether to let this loan go or whether we should invest in this area. Like, what do you think? When someone actually asks you honestly, "What what do you think about this? Like, give it to me straight. What do you think? It shows incredible value. It shows that they care about you. It shows that they respect you as a thinking person. It shows, in many regards, that they think you're pretty cool. So if the scripture is true, if prophecy is true, then how often when we make decisions do we actually consult with God and say, God, what do you think? Imagine what would happen if we began to do this individually and as a church family. We talked about fear. This is what Daniel says in Daniel 7, 17 and 18. The Bible says there, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Scary stuff. 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Oh, man, I hope that that encourages you today. That here's Daniel, even after Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, he just lays down because he is exhausted. He is completely depleted. But it's like God's grace, even in those scary prophecies, saying, you know what, Daniel? There will be empires upon top of empires. Jesus, in Matthew 24, they said, What's the end times going to be like, Jesus? And he said, two things, wars and rumors of wars. So whenever you're in a war and it's about to wind down, there's a rumor of another war. And then guess what happens? Another war. It will be a scary world. But the Bible tells us that those who have been born again and saved, we will possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. You see, our lives are not to be grounded here. Our lives are to be used here for God's glory, for a kingdom that transcends this world. And it begins with a heart that is willing to say to God, say, God, what do you think? What should I do?